Bleeding Matters with Joel Caparelli. Okay, this is the official first episode of Season 2 of Bleeding Matters. And look, right out of the gate, I want to thank you all for listening, for your kind words and your feedback on the episodes. And mostly, I want to thank my guests for Season 1 because... Uh, look, when I started this in spring of 15, I didn't exactly know where it was going to head. I knew I wanted to start something like this and, and tap into the minds of leaders across the country and share that insight with those that would listen to the show, but I, I wasn't quite sure of the of the momentum that it would take, and by the, the goodness of my guests, it really took on a lot of great momentum and, and tremendous value. So go ahead and take a look at season one. I think you're going to really like what you hear there, uh, and you're going to find some great wisdom. So load those episodes up on your podcast uh, player, pop them in, in the car on your commute because you're, you're going to gain some value. So again, thanks to all of my guests from season one. But we're about season two right now, and season two starts with Dan Pink, and I am so humbled and excited to have him on the show. You're going to love the episode. Dan, if you don't know him, you, you probably do, but if you don't, go look him up and pick up a couple of his books. Uh, Drive is a good one. To Sell as Human is another great one, because he takes um, a really good, hard look at some of the data that illustrates how we sell, how we are motivated, and it makes it very accessible to turn it into a reality. So we could take all the things that we talk about here on Leading Matters, things like vision and purpose and passion, and how we kind of flip those over into actually executing on a daily basis. And listen, I have to thank him a lot because he was very gracious with me to give me his time um, and really provide the insight. You know, I kind of took the interview in a direction where where I wanted it to go, so it was a little self-indulgent because I was so eager to get his insights on it, and he he allowed that. He really kind of understood the direction I was wanting to head, and he, he dove right in and connected a lot of dots for me. So hopefully it wasn't just a exercise in self-indulgence. I, I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please let me know that you did. Pass it along to your friends and, if, uh, and your colleagues if you found it valuable, because if chances are if you find it valuable, somebody else will. So go ahead and do that. And most of all, uh, make sure you save this episode and buckle up. It's about 20 minutes or so. And now here's my interview with best-selling author Daniel Pink. Okay, my guest today is Daniel Pink, and it's my bet that you've either read one of his books, like A Whole New Mind, Drive, or even his most recent To Sell as Human, or it's maybe even more likely that you've watched his TED Talk, The Puzzle of Motivation, which ranks as one of the top 10 most viewed TED Talks of all time. Now, his passion for explaining the nuance and art and science of how and why we work, it's, it's legitimately infectious, and I know you're going to enjoy our talk with him today. But before we get started with that, Dan, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining me today on Leading Matters. Joel, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So listen, I want to jump right into it, Dan. We met back in 2010 after you delivered a keynote at a conference on the topic of your book, Drive, at the time and what motivates. And you know, it's funny, in preparing for our call today, in hindsight, your perspective on motivation you know, especially now, it seems kind of ahead of its time, right? Because purpose seems to be finally beginning to be understood as the most important element into how we manage our teams, how we manage our employees, and, and indeed our business. Do you think that's true, that, that this idea of purpose is finally coalescing and becoming a little bit more, um, you know, clarifying a little bit for leaders today, that, that we're finally better understanding that idea and notion of purpose? It's a good question. I think so ever so slowly. It's it's one of those one of those concepts that that seems to have a kind of a 
more of a tortoise trajectory than a, a hare trajectory. And so I think over time, bit by bit, ever so slowly, that is um, coming true. So, you know, it's funny because I, I had on the other day uh, a woman, her name's Layla Seika. She runs desk.com. And, you know, she had uh, explained to me that a lot of her staff is younger 30s and early 20, you know, late, late 20-somethings. And desk.com, if you're familiar with them, is in the customer service business. And she had a really good enlightening kind of, uh, you know, realization when she started managing this group and she took over desk.com was that, Listen, these the, the idea and notion of customer service is we have low expectations, most of us. We don't expect that we're going to get a good return. But her 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 younger uh, members of her workforce was like, no, they rejected that notion. They said, no, we have to set a high expectation for customer service because, you know, it's a service that we're providing to better the experience of our products. And she said to me, wow, this, this whole idea of empathy really comes through loud and clear from that kind of millennial generation. I mean, I, I kind of share that story with you because I'm just curious if you think that's indicative of this uh, quote-unquote millennial generation. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, I, I'm. Gen- I think you make some. Real, I think you make some very, very good points here. You know, I'm generally skeptical of generational explanations for things. Um, in in part because the history of humankind is that every incumbent generation thinks that the generation rising behind it is lazy, didn't pay its dues, and so forth. But I do think that there are material differences between the millennials and, and others. And I think you ident- I think purpose is absolutely one of them. There's some interesting polling data showing how purpose-driven this, this generation is. On the idea of empathy, um, I'm not sure. Um, it could be related to that. It's like, you know, it could be related to this idea. It's like, well, if I'm going to go to work, I want to do something valuable. I want to do something worthwhile. That it could be an outgrowth, that the empathy concern could be an outgrowth of, of purpose. Um, but I do think that there's a general sense of people saying, hey, I want to make work my own. I want to do something that matters. I want to do something that has an impact. I want to have some control over what I do and how I do it. And maybe that does express itself in, in greater empathy. It's a very interesting point. Well, you know, let's stick with that for a second because, I mean, that was a big part of – that was kind of the theme of drive in general. And, and I, I'm actually glad to hear you say you don't kind of buy into these generational explanations because I kind of think well, it's I'm a lot skeptical. of – Well, I'm skeptical. I think there's some truth to them. I think that a lot of times they're oversold. Well, sure. I mean, well, it makes for a good headline, right, and a good clickbaiting kind of, uh, you know uh, – but let me stick with it for a second because that this idea of – it seems to me, and this is what Drive is all about, about, listen, what motivates us is far beyond the – you know, I don't want to boil down your, your book to a sentence, but, you know, it, it's far beyond just the, the carrot and the stick. It has a lot more to do with what our intent of what we do on a daily basis is. And and so forget about the generational divides. Is that just true of our, of this time of, of – of our business history itself, or is it is it something that's evolved? You know, discuss that a little bit for the benefit of those that that haven't seen your TED talk or haven't talked about or read Drive. I mean, this idea of motivation is it something that's changed with recently? Yeah, I mean, the the, answer, the, the short answer to your question is about whether this is a a phenomenon that that grows from contempt to this particular moment. The answer, to the short answer, is yes and no. Uh, the longer answer is that the, one of the core ideas in Drive, which looks at 50 years of research in human motivation, is essentially this, that 
the, the mainstay motivator we use inside of firms, something that I call an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. What the science tells us very, very clearly is this. If-then rewards are, are very effective for simple, short-term tasks. Um, we love re- we human beings love rewards. They get us to focus. Um, and so if the task is one that requires focus, algorithmic thinking, short time horizons, if-then rewards are very effective. Uh, however, the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards, not all rewards again, but if-then rewards, these controlling contingent rewards, are far less effective for more complex creative work with longer time horizons. And the reason is pretty much the same. These if-then rewards, they get us to focus very narrowly. That's good for algorithmic tasks where, you know, where you're following an algorithm following a recipe. It's less good. It's actually can be work against you if you need to have a broad perspective, if you need to combine things from different areas, um, if you need to sustain motivation over a longer period of time. And so, um, and so what, what, what really turns out to motivate people for those kinds of tasks, for the kinds of things that most people are doing in the economy today, which are not routine, robotic, algorithmic tasks, but require more conceptual thinking, more creative thinking, what you really need is to pay people well, pay people fairly, very important to pay people well, and then offer them some autonomy, um, you know, some sovereignty over what they do and how they do it, uh, mastery, which is getting better at something that matters, making progress, and, and as you said earlier, Joel, purpose. Um, and so the reason the answer to your original question, which we pro- most listeners have probably long since forgotten during my little tirade here, is it, it, the reason the answer is yes and no is the following. Um, it, it turns out that, yeah, the, answer, the yes part of the question is, yeah, I mean, these motivators, autonomy, mastery, and purpose matter much more today than they have in business before because the nature of what people are doing in business has changed. You know, it used to be both in blue-collar and white-collar work that much of the actual tasks were routine. You're following a recipe. You're following a spec sheet. You're doing the same thing over and over again. Could be with your body turn the same screw the same way on an assembly line, but could be with your with your brain and white-collar work. Process these papers, add up these figures. And so if-then rewards are effective for those kinds of tasks, the trouble is that we're not doing as many of those kinds of tasks, and so we need a different uh, set of, of motivations. Now, these motivations of autonomy, mastery, and purpose – this is the no part of the answer, are actually nothing new. They're fundamental to what it means to be a human being. Human beings, over time, want to have some sovereignty over their lives. Human beings, you know, anytime, anywhere, want to get better at stuff. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want to make progress. Human beings, since the time that there were human beings, want to know, okay, why am I here? What's the objective? What's the purpose of all this? What's the point of the exercise? And so a lot of these kind of deeply human um, uh, drives that have always been present in human beings are, again, part of what it means to be human. It's just that now there's this interesting um, uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, convergence between these fundamentally human characteristics and what it takes to be successful on the job. Sure, sure. And you know what? As you're, as you're talking there, I want to kind of connect it to uh, your latest book, To Sell as Human, because you talk about, in the beginning of that book, about how, look, we're 
basically all in sales today in one you know way, shape, or, or form, right? And I heard a great statistic last night about um, – they were talking about retail over this Thanksgiving holiday and that 40% of retail shoppers for electronics today go into a retail store believing that they know more about the products they're interested in than the sales associate does. And I found that pretty staggering, right, to think that – yeah, sure, that to think that every every other person that comes into that store and say like a Best Buy knows more than the sales rep. And then it made me think of your book, right, because in the context of how you frame the sales process into sell as human, that cha- – and you talk about the nature of the job changing, right? So is this new reality that you discussed as part of motivation also the change to, say, for instance, that retail rep's job? Uh, yeah, no, it's, okay, I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah, very, very good point. Um, so, you know, again, the, the animating idea in, in Sell as Human, it, or one of the animating ideas, is that most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller did know a lot more than the buyer. Even better, the seller had, the buyer didn't, or even worse, and so, yeah, I really mean, this. you know, the, most of what we know about sales comes from a world where the sellers have Sorry, the buyers have not much information, not many choices, and no way to talk back. Um, that's uh, a world of buyer beware. Uh, now, as you suggest with that electronics example, we're in a world where the less defined by information asymmetry and more defined by information parity. So the buyers, not in every situation, but in many situations, um, have um, uh, buyers have as much information as sellers sometimes more, as you suggest. Uh, buyers have lots of choices, and buyers have all kinds of ways to talk back. Uh, that's a very different world. That's a world of seller beware. Now, the sellers are on notice. And in a world, a world of seller beware relies on a different set of capabilities than a world of buyer beware. Um, and you're right that some of those capabilities align with the principles of autonomy, mastery, and, um, and purpose. Um, that as, as, as salespeople end up doing, since certain aspects of a sales process can be routinized, whether it's B2C, where customers can just go online and find their, the boots they want to buy or the Chrome book they want to buy, or whether it's B2B, where the buyers are coming in having gotten, having much, much later in the sales process, uh, the skills that effective salespeople need are a very different basket, and the motivations that are necessary to succeed in that world are at least partly autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Sure. No, I, I'm glad he asked the question, right, because I, a lot of leaders that come on the show, it, it's funny, you know, none of them know each other, right? And I ask kind of the same kind of series of questions, and there's always seems to be a thirst to define that for their teams, right? So, as a matter of fact, I had a guy, his name's uh, Art Pappas. He runs a software company in Boston called Bullhorn, and they really went under a radical change of what their their vision was to get away from this revenue-generating, you know, bottom-line impact-type stuff to, hey, let's sincerely care about the customer. So much, in fact, that the sales force was genuinely concerned and worried that it was going to affect their pipelines and their business right now in the end it all it sure it all worked out in the end because they actually be, by by improving the customer experience it actually increased sales but there's there's a struggle and there's there's a there's a uh, conflict with leaders there like what do we do as leaders if we want to drive in this direction of you know understanding the buyers more educated and being able to meet them where they are and help them kind of see a vision of what their reality should be how do we balance that with actually executing on a day-to-day to make sure 
sure that we're making the business run and, and not sacrificing sales for this grander vision of purpose? Uh, it's a huge issue. Uh, and, you know, there's not a single answer to that question. It really depends. Um, you, you know, there is, you know, any kind of any kind of leadership or, you know, any kind of day-to-day effectiveness depends on this toggle between, I mean, essentially what you're talking about, just to paraphrase, I think is what is is kind of a, a toggle between the short term and the long term, um, and so um, and so you know you can get fo- you can get so focused in the short term what were our numbers today that you end up gradually drifting off track and becoming irrelevant. Uh, on the other hand, you can go the other way and say, oh, I don't really care about what happens today. All I care about is the long term, but the long term never comes because you put yourself out of business. And so, you know, I think that that toggling back and forth between those two perspectives is, you know, is obviously essential in any kind of leadership. I would double down and say it's essential in any kind of personal effectiveness, too. You know, it's I mean, think about, you know, uh, I think about myself as a life, you know, in the life of a writer. Um, If I focus um, if I focus only on getting, you know, X number of words, per, if I focus on only getting X number of words per day, I probably will get only X, I probably will get X number of words a day. On the other hand, they might, if I'm not focused on the long term, uh, on the bigger picture, on the purpose, on what's it all about, I might end up writing X number of irrelevant words. On the other hand, if I focus only on the big and transcendent, I might not get anything done. And so, I, you know, I think that you have articulated this conundrum at the heart of uh, of navigating one's way through business, whether you're running a Fortune 500 company or whether you're a schmo like me trying to write some books. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would describe it that way, right? But I think uh, I think your books have had tremendous impact, right? Because it's very notion, right? And I know look, before we got on, we talked about the Challenger sale. I know you've read it. Those that listen to my program know that I'm a big fan of it. And it actually takes on this notion of the more educated buyer and suggests that we have to kind of challenge our prospects to, to do exactly what we just talked about, is think a little bit bigger beyond the solution and the immediate need. And I guess my question, especially as you define this conundrum that we're in, to connect the broader vision of passion to the daily execution to make sure I get the job done, right, is is that part of what we need to do as, as a as a selling entity, and I don't, I don't mean selling in the dollars and cents way, but in the way you define it and to sell as human is the way we, we pitch and communicate and, and coalesce around an idea. I mean, do we have to make an effort? And again, I'm kind of putting on the spot here, right? But I'm just curious if, if you think, if Dan Pink thinks, do we have to make an effort to paint that bigger picture and then help ourselves as individuals, our team members, our companies, our customers, connect those dots to see with cl- with clarity how we achieve that bigger picture. In other words, hey, here's the purpose, here's the big picture, here's the product and solution on the right side of the column, right? Here's the solution on the left side, and here's all the dots, here's all the nuance and all the specificity and even the science to how we get from the left to the right. Does that, I'm not sure if that made sense, but I'm just curious if, if, you, if you think that's part of what we need to do as, as business leaders. I, I do, I do, and, and I think there's a way to give you, you know, we can... We, if you take the, the the ideas in the challenger sale and, and what you just said, I think there's a there's particularly when it comes to sales, but I think even in terms of to some extent in terms of leadership, um, I think there's a there's a there's a very aligned way to to look at it. And and the way I like to talk about it is this: let's talk about it in terms of sales, though. 
Um, you know, there are a lot of salespeople out there, maybe some of them listening to your show, who say, I'm not really in sales, I'm a problem solver. Okay, A lot of people in sales talk about themselves as problem solvers, and, that, and that's cool. Uh, what's happened, though, and this, I think, sweeps in a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, Joel, is that um, today problem solving is a less valuable skill. Let's talk about it in terms of sales. If your customer or your prospect knows exactly what its problem is, they don't need you very much. Go back to your example of the person walking into the retail electronics store. Uh, if they know I want to get a um, I want to get a uh, a certain television set in a certain size by a certain manufacturer, um, and I've already done my research. In fact, I might be more informed than the sales associate. I don't need any help, right? I don't need that sales associate. I don't need a salesperson. Um, and so if you're in sales, you can't really do very much. Um, it, however, where do they – so so again, the point, simple point being that when customers know precisely what the problem is, they don't need a salesperson, whether it's B2B or B2C. However, where do they need you? And here's where I think it gets interesting. They need you – let's talk about B2B, for instance, because that's really what challenger sale is about. They need you – those customers need you when you're wrong about your problem. Or you don't know what your problem is. And so the premium has shifted, to my mind, from the skill of problem solving to the skill of problem finding. Can you identify latent problems? Can you surface hidden problems? Can you look around the corner and say, nothing's happening right now, but hey, just wait. Look what's coming down the path. And uh, that shift in abilities from problem solving, which at some level is an algorithmic task, to problem finding which is much more of a heuristic task, is I think at the heart of a lot of what's going on in business today. Um, and so you know, at some level, the challenger sale with its, you know, basically challenger customer is essentially, you know, talking about problem finding as a skill rather than problem solving. And problem solving is because problem solving as a skill in sales and other kinds of realms is unfortunately for a lot of us becoming a commodity. You know, I'm, it's funny. I, I I actually had uh, Brent on my show a little while back, and I, I got really excited about about how he defined this and and how he, he kind of approaches. It. And that's why I love. I think those two books, like yours and, and, and his, really line up really well. Because one of the the things I loved about to sell as human is this idea of authenticity, right? In other words, I can't I can't be the problem discoverer for you if I'm not approaching the desire to solve your problem with a certain level of authenticity, right? I mean, did I kind of inject too much into that notion of authenticity or do you think it actually has to start right there to be able to place ourselves in the position of trying to do some problem reconnaissance if you will for our marketplace yeah i think it's i think it's partly authenticity i think it's partly um what you're describing as kind of a higher level cognitive skill which is basically if i'm selling if i'm the salesperson you're the prospect you know i have to come to you with um you know, a desire actually to serve, a desire to make your life better, as a desire to be to be somebody in your life who makes your life easier rather than makes your life harder. Um, that's certainly going to be the secret to any kind of long-term success and any kind of long-term relationship. Um, and so it's partly authenticity, but it, at some level it's less about the uh, how authentic the seller projects than it is about how adept the seller is at taking the perspective of the buyer. 
can I really understand what's going on in your world? Can I really understand your business perhaps better than you? Can I see the various pressures that you have from your point of view? Um, that's going to allow me to find the problem more readily um, than you know, you know, then then going in there saying, okay, what can I do to get him to sign on the line that is dotted? Now, again, just to be fair, back to your earlier point, at some point I do have to close. At some point I do have to ask for the deal. But if you go into that in, the encounter in a purely transactional way, it might be useful in the short term, but maybe not. Uh, but it's gonna, it's not gonna be a recipe for the for for the long term. You're entering into, you know, a series of one-off transactions, which means it's gonna take a huge amount of effort and energy to revive those things, to continue those things down the road. You know what, that's, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm glad that you framed it that way, right? Because I think it underscores everything we, we've kind of been talking about here today. And actually, I, I think I want to leave it right there because I, I love when the audience, if they've listened to 20 minutes, kind of walks away with, with kind of a, an action. And I think connecting those two things you just talked about is a great a great place to start. Hey, evaluate, am I able to do that? So listen, Dan, let me ask you a question. Um, I want to gain some insight into what we could expect from, from you next. I know to, help, to sell as human came out about a year and a half ago, so I'm just curious what you're working on now and if you can give us any insight there. Uh, I'm ever so slowly trying to begin work on a new book that will not have anything to do with sales or with motivation, but um, that but that might have something to do with um, uh, how we actually, how we spend our time. Because time is, you know, time is one of the few things that is purely democratic, uh, small d democratic. You know, uh, you and I get the same amount of time as Warren Buffett, as Richard Branson, as Sheryl Sandberg, as Bill Gates, as yeah. the guy down the street. And so, how we allocate our time um, is a fascinating and I think underexplored topic. I love that. I, you know what? I'm I'm so excited to hear that's your next topic. So I'm, uh, I read the, there's a recent book. A guy Kevin Cruz that I read quite a bit does a lot of employee engagement. He wrote recently. It was more of like a how-to on uh, time management, right? But that that the idea of how judicious we are with our time. I love that you're tackling that. So I'm going to be looking forward to that. And listen, I want to wrap it up here. We've been speaking with the best-selling author and speaker Dan Pink. If you've not read his work, if you've not seen his talks, do yourself a favor. And after you're done here, go look him up right now. You'll be glad that you did and dan i want you to have a great holiday and, and mostly i just thank you so much for your time and joining me today on leading matters my pleasure Bill. thanks for having me on the program